1923, the church in the United States was in a crisis. Modernist theology born in pre-war Europe now gripped a country experiencing vibrant technological and societal change. America in the roaring 20s was booming. Fashion was changing. Music was faster, louder. Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin were astonishing moviegoers with impossible stunts. The cities were electric. Industry was accelerating. The country was three years into progressive prohibition of hard liquor. For the first time, a person could fly non-stop from New York to Seattle. And even though much of the country remained segregated by race, women had recently won the right to vote, electing President Harding. Progress had reached the countryside too. Mass-produced cars, trucks, and tractors replaced horses and wagons, transforming the very landscape. Telephones and the advent of radio meant that information traveled faster than ever. Politics, technology, identity, power, science. Everything seems to be changing. So why not faith? This is Christianity and Liberalism, a podcast based on the book by Jay Gresham Machen. In this show, we'll be discussing a modern-day church in crisis and engaging with Machen's classic text to see what lessons we can learn and apply 100 years later. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrist Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL, with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell Arrested Development. In the 1990s, it was a hip-hop group. In the early 2000s, it was a sitcom. But it's a real psychological phenomenon that describes a person or institution that has stopped growing and ceased to thrive. And it's a phrase Jay Gresham Machen uses in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, to describe the consequences of a liberal theology. In the book, Machen describes liberals who criticize Christians for defending a defenseless cause. It's like defending the belief that the earth is flat, they say, or that miracles happen, or that sins need to be forgiven. What's the point, asks the liberal. Everyone knows those things are impossible, so why bother defending them? If that sounds familiar, it's because we hear similar arguments from within the church today. Many are calling for a reevaluation of biblical views on sexual attraction, the sanctity of life, race, or even what it means to be a man or a woman. Although the topics have changed, the motivation for liberalism or progressivism today isn't all that different from that scathing critique of the church Machen confronted 100 years ago. Back then, the American church tried to compromise essential tenets of Orthodox Christianity in order to make it work. And as Machen predicted, it resulted in arrested development. In the years after Machen's book, liberal Protestant mainline churches folded Thousands made a shipwreck of their faith. Denominations split and scores of ministries succumbed to theological compromise. All that remained was a facade of beautiful buildings and good deeds that lacked genuine faith in Christ at its center. So what should we do? Is it worth the church taking a hard look at what can be thrown overboard? Is doctrine really that important? Do we really need to follow ancient creeds and confessions? I'm your host, David Brionis, and in this episode, I'll explore an answer to these questions with my guest, Kevin DeYoung. In addition to providing a new forward to this book, Christianity and Liberalism, Kevin is pastor of Christ Covenant Church in North Carolina, and he's associate professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, Charlotte. And as a popular author and speaker, he's had a front row seat to developments in the church over the last couple of decades, a perspective that will mine for some answers. In his new foreword to Christianity and Liberalism, Kevin lists seven lessons from Machen's book for Christians to re-remember today. Let's listen in. Before we dive in, I wanted to ask you to unpack a few of those for us. So first, 
you say, true unity must be grounded in more than shared mission and shared experience. How does Machen address that in the book? And how is, how is this unity possible in a country and a church mm. that sometimes feels irreconcilably divided? It's really one of the, the big themes in Machen's book and one of the main controversies, as any students of history will know, with this whole modernist fundamentalist controversy, and in particular in the Presbyterian Church, is often what precipitated these things were different plans of union with various ecclesiastical bodies, and more so in mainline denominations, I think of even the mainline denomination that I grew up in, there was hardly ever an annual synod meeting, it seemed like, where we weren't hit over the head with union, unity, coming together, mission, so much so that now in a more conservative setting, denomination, teach at RTS, I need to remind myself and remind others, hey, th- these are good, these are good biblical words. We like mission, we yes. like union, we like unity. We like love. Let's not let people steal these things from us. Mm-hmm. But it was often the case, and certainly was in Machen's day, that unity became a way, to use Machen's term, to paper over doctrinal indifferentism. It was really an expression of doctrinal indifferentism, that unity trumped all other concerns. And so if we were doing the same good deeds for people, we had the same mission. And of course, Machen points out, is it really the same mission? Are we really doing the, are we really conceiving of the church's mission in the same way? Or have we reduced the mission to a sort of humanitarian social services such that we all do good, relatively non-controversial things to bless one another? Is that really a sufficient basis for unity? Uh, it, it, you know, the second part of your question it, it is right. We live in incredibly divisive times. We have 330 million people in just this country, the United States, and there's probably people listening from elsewhere. We have, what, 300,000 churches. We have lots, hundreds, thousands of denominations. And even within those church groups and networks, there are lots of divisions. So w- we must remember that the Bible takes unity really seriously. But sort of the simple way I think about it in my head is God wants us to show relational unity with those with whom we have genuine spiritual unity. Of course, we we love one another and we love our enemies. So there's just a general kindness toward people. But this kind of deep spiritual unity ought to be showed forth for those who who genuinely have it. So Ephesians 4 is telling the church there how they're to be deal with one another and bear with one another and be patient and love and all the things they're supposed to do. Why? Because they have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So it's the assumption of those deepest spiritual doctrinal realities that then, hey, you are really united. So I think you know, in Machen's day, it was the question, well, are we really united? To call for unity for those who are not really united in the most important things of life and faith is a false unity, not based on truth. Hmm. Oh, that's really hopeful. You know, it makes me think of another quote, something else that we should remember is the church, you say, must not lose sight of its unique mission in the hmm. world to announce the good news of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. So so how, how has the church fallen short here in 2023? And how can we revive and reform it? There's always a danger of the church conceiving of its mission either too broadly or too narrowly. And, and I don't pretend that we just, of course, we're in the golden mean but by, by too narrowly that perhaps some denominations or Christians are just want to blitzkrieg through the world, throw up a curtain, throw a movie, a Jesus movie, and get people to make a, a con- commitment to, to Christ. Mm-hmm. Well-intentioned. But of course, Jesus and the Great Commission 
doesn't call to make decisions, but to make disciples. So we don't want to conceive of the mission of the church as merely getting people to that point to pray a prayer, prayer or say something and, okay, you're a Christian, let's, let's move on. I think the danger for many of us in reform, thoughtful, well-educated kind of Presbyterian circles is that we might be tempted to conceive of the mission of the church too broadly. And there was that famous saying, you know, years ago that if mission is everything, then mission is nothing. And again, I've been to conferences and things where it's, it's just put up mission is one. And you kind of have a, a picture of somebody with a Bible open. You got a picture of someone digging a well, you got a picture of someone in a hospital and it's, that's all mission. Well, our, our words there are really important. We're not talking about good things that Christian do, Christians do as salt and light in the world, but mission sent out. What, what, are, what are we sending people out? What is it the task that God has given us to accomplish in the world? And I think it used to be uncontroversial that we find the answer to that in the, in the Great Commission text. And we find it there spinning out in Acts chapter 1 and throughout the book of Acts. I actually think Acts 14 is usually the text I take people to because Paul's returning from his missionary voyage and it mentions three things that he does, is that he preaches the gospel in each city and he equips the disciples and he uh, appoints elders. So it's evangelism, discipleship, church planting, and then the third leg of the stool is church strengthening, uh, which is why seminaries matter and education matters. So I think uh, I, the simple rubric I have in my head sometimes to just help pastors or help uh, missions committees is to say, are we doing the things as a church that if we don't do them, no one else will? It's not that there's never any overlap, but I used to say, and this is kind of dated from Gen X sort of example, but I'd say, uh, if we're, if if Bono and Oprah love all the things that we're doing, then we're not doing the things that are most important. It, uh, because if it's just the the UN developmental goals we're helping to meet, the only people who are going to preach the gospel to save sinners from hell are Christians and the Christian church. And so we must absolutely keep that mission central to our identity. Yeah. <clears throat> That's what I love about one of the seven statements. Beware of all theologies that do not begin with the utter holiness of God mm. and the utter lostness of man. Like, let's just say we have someone who's listening in, and this is the first time they're exposed to this great divide between Christianity mm. and liberalism. And they're wondering, in my church, what are some of the things that that person would see within their church that would be a trajectory or maybe exhibiting liberalism, as opposed to a church that exhibits the fundamentals of the Christian faith. What are some things that they would see on a regular basis, things that they would hear, different emphases, as opposed to what one would hear in a church that prizes uh, the Christian faith historically handed down to us? You know, there's that famous saying, uh, which one of the neighbors said it, and I won't quote it exactly offhand, but that the, the gospel of liber liberalism was a God without wrath brought a people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. Hmm. And probably, though, you know, it was neo-Orthodox, but probably no more severe summary of liberalism has been stated than that. And you can just look at what each of those phrases are, are saying. So uh, a God who isn't isn't all that much bigger than us you know he's he's very sympathetic he's very kind he feels really strong things in our pain he wants to see but is it god who's who's other who's beyond comprehension in some ways who is holy who is a distance so i'm preaching through leviticus right now and uh, and surprisingly people are liking it but i'll say we need we need the God, what Leviticus tells us over and over again with all these strange laws, it's, it's all a reinforcing God is holy and you are not. God is holy and you are not. That's why you need mm -hmm. all the sacrifices all the time. That's why you have all these cl clean laws and what's holy and what's common, why you have priests, why you have sacrifices. And everything about that, I don't need to tell you about the Old Testament you know, worldview is to reinforce this about God and his people. And I think so many folks are missing that. And so people listening to this, just want to 
ask, am I getting from my church through the regular rhythm of the services, the songs that we sing, the prayers that are prayed, are there confessions of sin? Are, are we getting this, this gospel arc week after week? There is a holy, loving, just, omnipotent, massive, big God, and I'm a sinner. And you don't just stop there. That would just be bad news. But there, there's a cross then. There's a Savior. And I know the stereotype of some churches is it's always just the same. And now come to Jesus, come to Jesus sermon, that old Sunday school joke. The teacher says, all right, class, what's big and has floppy ears and a long trunk and is gray. And the student says, well, it sounds like an elephant, but it's Sunday school. So I'll have to say Jesus. <laughs> it's just kind of that's the answer. Yep. So it's not it's not a a a reductionistic ministry or message every week, but really to say, are we focused on the main things? Which is Jesus when he comes out in his public ministry, he the first thing he says is repent, believe in the gospel. So is that front and center? When's the last time in your churches someone's been called to repent? Because that was the message Jesus preached. Are we repenting of sins? believing in Christ, that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. Few books in the last 100 years have enjoyed the influence that Christianity and liberalism has. Although by today's standards, Machen would be a fairly obscure religious figure, in the 1920s and 30s, his stand against liberal theology at Princeton and in the Presbyterian Church was covered by major news outlets like the New York Times. And this wasn't even a Christian book by today's standards. It was released by Macmillan, a company that published authors like H.G. Wells and Kipling. What's given his book such a long-lasting legacy is that it draws a line in the sand and it has a way of changing the way its readers see the world. And although even Machen's critics had to admit that he was a fair and thoughtful opponent, not everyone liked the ampersand in the title. So in your new foreword to the book, you say that the most important word in the title is the and. Can you expand on that? Why is liberalism necessarily a different religion? Why can't we think of liberalism as just another sect like Pentecostalism or being Baptist or Presbyterianism. Why is liberalism necessarily a different religion? It is a jarring assertion that and in the title, Christianity and liberalism. And I know I'm, I'm not the, the first person to point out that the conjunction there is the most important word. Well, uh, on the one hand, it, I mean, it is just a fact that there is a whole tradition of Protestant liberalism. There's a, I have several volumes on my shelves of uh, American theological liberalism uh, by a, a liberal theologian and historian, and it's very informative. So when we say liberalism, the first thing is anybody listening to this, it, it's it's not it's not a swear word. It's not just a word that Christians or conservatives or evangelicals or whatever term you want to use just invent to say. Oh, bad guys over there. Um, there is a discernible tradition which embraces and uh, will often refer to itself as liberalism. So why does Machen call it something other than Christianity? And I think rightfully so, that, though that's bound to be offensive. I think it, you know, Machen goes through, and in particular there in the 1920s, he's writing about a number of core doctrines. And so it, it is it is hard to avoid the conclusion that Machen reaches that if you're talking about a church or a theological system that does not believe in the virgin birth, or at least doesn't consider it important or of any first importance, mm -hmm. uh, has a different view of man's fundamental problem, has a different view of what the cross achieves in, uh, in solving that problem, has a different conception of the church, has a different understanding of the authority and the inspiration of the word of God, uh, and you can go on and on, has a different understanding of what happens after you die and what happens to those who believe or don't believe, 
Well, you are really not simply, you know, nibbling around the edges. You would say that's a that's a different religious system, which conceives of you know, the holy book in a different way and conceives of the mediator in a different way and the problem in a different way and the solution in a different way and the afterlife in a different way. Hmm. Uh, this is something other than historic Orthodox Christianity. And I think would have been up until, you know, pick a date, the, the, the sometime in the 18th century, perhaps would have been considered something completely foreign to the experience of the Christian church for, you know, coming close to two millennia. And I think a number of liberal theologians will we'll even recognize that part of the liberal project is to find a way to reconcile modern science, modern ideas, modern in our contemporary experience, and to question these older models of authority and centered upon cross and divine wrath. So many honest, you know, very smart liberal theologians will recognize that it is a new project in the history of the church. Uh, likely not to wouldn't want to call it something other than Christianity, but certainly other than what Christianity had been, how it had been practiced, how it had been conceived, and how it had been defended for centuries. Hmm. You know, it's interesting how a lot of people, uh, especially those who go on and get PhDs and they're doing systematic theology or teaching biblical studies and they end up in different seminaries that historically have been conservative, but they're kind of on the fringe if if you try to basically say, I think you're a little liberal in these areas, they look at you sometimes and say, me, liberal? Not at all. Because they're comparing themselves with other people. Do you find that that's an issue today where you have a, a bunch of liberals who actually think that they're on this retrieval project of reclaiming the term evangelical, for example, or uh, reclaiming the right to say, actually, I'm conservative, given the fact that so many German liberals were <laughs> preaching weekly, they were passionate churchmen, they were doing the work of missions, so on and so forth. Uh, do you find that some liberals today actually think that they're declaring a message of divine grace? Oh, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's the case, that many, and in fact, many liberals, you know, I, I can think of a very liberal church in in, in our town here in Charlotte, and the pastor has some book about the the evils of white supremacy or Christian nationalism or something. And I haven't read the book and maybe there are genuine evils in there though. I, I, I know this church and, uh, and w would not expect to find much from the pulpit there that we would consider to be biblical, authentic Christianity, but no doubt the, the pastor and, and thousands like him, are very convinced that it's this sort of gospel that you and I are are talking about and defending and that Machen was defending that is oppressive or legalistic or demeaning. Uh, today it would be LGBTQ persons. That wouldn't have been the issue in Machen's day. It would have been some other, you know, it would have been Pearl Buck going off to China and that controversy that erupts in the Presbyterian church because mm -hmm. Pearl Buck, famous author and missionary, I use the term lightly, is basically saying, I, I, I don't think my task is to, to preach, to give these people the gospel. Uh, I don't think they're in need of it. I don't think they're in danger without it. So many people today, yes, there would be liberals who would, who would imagine that the message they're giving is actually the most gracious. I mean, they have all the terms. We all have heard them. Uh, inclusive, expansive, tolerant. So there'd be see it as incredibly gracious. Uh, and there's a lot of ways to respond to that. One is to say, well, it, would it be gracious to people like us? Would it, would it be people? I mean, they have, they have their folks who are in the out group as well. Would it be gracious to someone who votes on the other side of their political mm -hmm. divide? Mm -hmm. uh, no, they, they probably have a certain kind of judgment re reserved for other sorts of, people and even more to the point more theologically is it grace and this is what machen comes back to time and time again is it really grace if the message is essentially about 
the sort of things you need to do to bring about the kingdom of God in the world, rather than a message about human lostness, justification by faith, the Spirit's regenerating power, the work of the cross to, to save us from the wrath of God. So it's absolutely the case, and this is why we always need to be discerning uh, and on our guard, because uh, especially today in, in most of our circles, you won't find, I mean, people say, yes, I'm, I've decided I'm not this, I'm now liberal. Uh, and many people would say, well, I'm liberal and, th- or I'm evangelical and ecumenical, or I'm holding all these things together. And I like what you said. I mean, it's, I don't like it, but it's a good point that the, you know, you look at some of the, some of these German scholars, and we know that Machen even wrestled with this in his studies of finding, how do I understand this man whose theology is not Christian? Uh, it is a warm-hearted, uh, kind person. And so we don't serve people if we make it sound like, ah, if you met a liberal, oh, you would just, it would be so obvious the the horns would be poking out. Of course, that's not the case. People are people and some people are jerks and some people who have really bad theology are decent people to be around. And I think that's often destabilizing for folks. But Machen sets us a good example that we can't form our theology and our Christian convictions based on... uh, who seems to be nice and who seems to uh, pray good prayers. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I remember reading uh, Ned B. Stonehouse's mm. biography and how how it really affected Machen in Germany, where he really wrestled with the piety of this professor that seemed to just leave uh, his... his um, leave a really huge impact on Machen's life. And that began the struggle between thinking through how is it that this guy is, is galvanizing me in the faith, but yeah. yet denies core doctrines. Uh, and I think it's amazing to me every year I go to ETS and then SBL and SBL have tons of friends having done my PhD in England, same as you, you have friends that are not on the same page mm-hmm. all the time and you keep up with them and you just see them affirming more and more of that liberal strand and promoting it. Uh, and yet they're just the best guys. You enjoy having a drink with them, uh, a good laugh, and yet you know that there's something that divides at the core. Uh, mm-hmm. It is really troubling, actually. So when we think about liberals then, and to, to put a blunt question uh, on the table for you, are liberals saved? I think Machen addresses this really well at the end of the book. He's got a few sentences on it. It says something like whether or, you know, to that delicate personal question of whether or not liberals are saved or are Christians. uh, He says it it, it wouldn't be for me to say, which, which I don't think is a cop out. I think that's uh, a good, humble answer before a holy God. We don't know what's in the human heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know we know what truths are saving truths. We don't always know how how many inconsistencies the Lord will will graciously overlook, or what sort of uh, heart may be better than somebody's head. So uh, I would want to say that, and yet Machen goes on to say whether or not you know, a liberal might be a Christian. We can say that liberalism does not save, and liberalism is not Christianity. And I and I. And, and I, I hear you with the, you know, the friends that we all see in, you know, it probably helps if you've gotten a PhD or not helps, but you're, you're going to rub shoulders with people who are very smart and, and drifting in some different ways, or at least moving in some different ways, but you don't have to be that. I mean, you can look any, any of us, if you just look at your, whatever Facebook friends or people that you went to college or high school with, we're all going to see folks that yeah. we sort of scratch our head. And for all we know, they're looking at us scratching their head. Wow. I didn't know they were like that. Uh, We live in times where we have all sorts of new issues, or at least they seem new to us, and where people, I'm surprised all the time as you are, uh, the the people that I see that, wow, they, they're waving, literally waving the rainbow flag. I didn't, I didn't know that was coming. And then sometimes people surprise me. I think, oh, I didn't even know you were a Christian when I knew you. And now you seem to be reading really good stuff and in moving in a really good direction. And, uh, you know, one of, one of my concerns just in our general intellectual discourse is 
we don't spend enough time actually keep coming back to the scriptures, coming back to theology and trying to understand what it says. We, we tend to just say, I know your motives and you're after power or you're benighted or you're bigot. And we don't actually, or all you have are your interpretations. I just wrote a little article about this. And therefore we short circuit the process of really diving into the, to the text to try to understand, well, maybe someone here is right or wrong, or, or maybe I need to learn something, but maybe you need to learn something. And again, one of the ways Machen's so instructive is he he saw this. He saw that this liberalism is an expression of and leads to a an indifferentism towards doctrine and uh, a sense that getting these doctrinal parameters right is not really very important. And when that's not important, then other things, it's always some doctrine. It's just rather than your Christology, your theology, your Trinitarian doctrine, your doctrine of the Bible— it's going to be, you know, your view of science or your view of politics. We're always going to be shaping our groups and our identity around some shared set of convictions. And yeah. at, the, at the best of times, we're doing that based on the Bible. In our contentious age, it's easy to get exasperated in our discourse and debates with those we disagree with. It's hard not to think of the worst of someone who can hold views antithetical to our own. We used to blame radio, then TV, now video games and social media for driving us apart. And of course, we're right to use our discernment in media. But in the first chapter of his book, Jay Gresham Machen points to a deeper issue in the contrast between Christianity and liberalism. His opponents, Machen said, like to fight their battles in a condition of low visibility. In Machen's introduction, he borrows a phrase from Francis Patton, a condition of low visibility, to describe how many of his intellectual opponents in 1923 liked to fight their battles. They did not have clear-cut definitions of terms mm. in religious mm -hmm. matters, nor did they consider the logical implications of their religious views. And they used that low visibility approach to gain advantage over their Christian opponents. You know, one author uh, writes this, a quote, language matters because mm. whoever controls the words controls the conversation. Because whoever controls the conversation controls its outcome. Because whoever frames the debate has already won it. Because telling the truth has become harder and harder to achieve in an America drowning in Orwellian newspeak. Mm. End quote. So we would do well to clearly define our terms. Well, to, to get to the, the first part, it's so good and a good, a good quotation. It's absolutely true. Definitions, definitions. What do you mean? And to the degree that people are impatient with that and or, or don't even or think that that's the problem to press toward definitions shows that if we've not already lost the battle, we're, we're well on our way to losing it. Mm -hmm. The most famous example, perhaps, in church history is the Council of Nicaea, and is Christ, is the Son of God, homoousia, homoousia. Edward Gibbon, no fan of Christianity, but said they were fighting over a diphthong. But it was, a, it was an eternally significant diphthong. Is, mm -hmm. is, was Christ of a similar essence or of the same essence? How should we conceive of the nature of the Father and the Son, and then of the Spirit and of the Trinity. I, I shudder to think if some folks in our day would have had to contend for the faith at Nicaea, would have. Eh, it's all. You know, what, what does it really matter there? But but of course that hap almost happened there because there was a middle part. There's always a a there was a moderating party that said, "Can we just use the language of Scripture?" Now, this is very instructive for us because you might think, yeah, of course, right? We love, we're the Bible people. And there was that party in the middle that said, let's define this only by using scriptural phrases. Uh, but of course, every debate in the history of the church has to some degree been about the Bible. You're always going to find smart people with the Bible. And if we're going to cast off doctrines because smart people who have Bible verses disagree, 
you're not just losing one or two things. You're, we're going to lose every precious doctrine there is. And so thankfully, the, the, the side with Athanasius, who wasn't you know, a bishop at the time, but that side said, no, we actually need to use some non-biblical terms to make clear what we understand these biblical passages to be saying. And uh, they were absolutely right. And that's been the need throughout the history of the church, not to simply find uh, a way to paper over what our core essential differences, but to get to the real heart of the matter. Now, what's difficult in all this is we, we all know, well, we don't all know, that there are some debates that aren't worth, there are some hills not worth dying on. There is what, you know, logomachia, what Paul says, you know, word battles and quarrels that are unhelpful. So th- we don't want the J. Gresham Machen fan club to, to mean every battle is worth dying on. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know Christians like that, the tiniest hill, and they're ready with swords out. I will mm-hmm. die on this hill of what baptisms for the dead mean in 1 Corinthians 15 or something. So we need a lot of discernment to see what those are. And then there are other folks who they've, they've, they, they won't be willing to die for any of these precious truths. But yeah, the words, mm-hmm. the words, the definitions, it, it, it's so often we're using the same words speaking from different dictionaries. We don't mean the same thing. This is with, talk. if you talk to a Mormon friend, wow, that sounds good until you realize our, the dictionaries we're using are very different. And that was so often what Machen was getting at with liberalism and in his day. I, I wrote a piece uh, a year or so ago is the anniversary of Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, from 1922. And so I wrote a, a piece on Fosdick and on the sermon. And so I, I, I studied more Fosdick than, than I had before and read more of his sermons. And you could see how, I mean, they have a little, there's a, there's a Joel Osteen flavor to it set back in uh, 100 years previous and uh, I could see how a lot of people could, he says a lot of things that we would be for and says a lot of very wonderful sounding Christian bromides uh, about brotherhood and love and uplift and improvement. And there's even a lot of language about Jesus. So I would hope, though, that our people would be discerning to realize this is not at all the same message, though it has some of the same words. Hmm. That's really... Uh, that's really quite important to be able to train people to to think through not just the words that are used, but be able to discern what words are not used mm-hmm. and what words should be used in a sermon or a Bible study. Now, you mentioned that that they had a dic- different dictionary back then. So yeah. in, in, in Machen's day, 1923, how would liberalism have been defined in that dictionary? Probably depended on on who you asked, and the there was already a tradition of it, and would continue to be developed. Uh, but I think they would see that liberalism was a project that was 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 trying to show how the faith of the Bible could be made relevant and cohere to the standards of modern reason and modern experience. Uh, Some of that I'm getting from Gary Dorian. I mentioned before these volumes on uh, history of American liberal theology, and uh, he's he's at a liberal institution and has written the, the magisterial work on American liberalism. And that's essentially, you know, his definition. And go back to Fosdick, who is one of the main sparring partners in the time of the 1920s. I mean, one of his uh, famous sermons is about, you know, the, was it the, the, the ark, I think, and that the ark was meant to hold the, the glory of God. And yet the ark was for a certain time. And so people, Israelites made the mistake of thinking that the the ark was the thing. As long as they had the ark, they were safe, and they neglected it was what it was the presence of God. It was the the mis, mysterious spiritual uh, affecting work of God that really mattered. 
And so he uses this metaphor to explain how we still want to hold on to what is the, you know, the, the essence, but we, if, if we need different trappings, we need the kernel and the husk, we need different ways of describing these things. That's always, I think, been how liberalism has understood itself, that there's a way to, to maintain some spiritual essence of Christianity. And that spiritual essence might be the love of God, the, you know, the brotherhood of man. There's that famous quip that uh, 19th century Unitarianism was the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston. That's, that's sort of what Unitarianism had become. Hmm. But there's some sort of some sort of kernel there, some sort of essence that usually has to do with God's love or unity or spirituality broadly conceived. And then the, then there's a husk around it. There's the artifice around it, which are the doctrines, the the terms, and those things are very changeable and movable. And we pay reverence and homage to what our, the, the forefathers and foremothers before us have come up with. And yet they came up with those terms and those definitions for their time. And we have to do something different for our time. I think that at itself distills the project of liberalism. Hmm. And liberals today in 2023, what would be some self-descriptors? How would they describe themselves today? What would be some terms that they would employ uh, to, to, to basically identify in this world? Uh, they may or may not. They may use the term progressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you do see that self-description. They probably have something on a website about inclusion, of course, inclusion by itself doesn't have to be a bad word. Right. Uh, welcoming, affirming. Mm-hmm. And you get into other, you know, social justice. Well, what is that? Mm-hmm. Social, good, justice, good. Put it together. What does that actually mean? But that often can be an umbrella mm-hmm. to cover a whole lot of other things. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and now there, you, you will find some, just as you did in Machen's day with Fosdick, who really want to define themselves against this. And what we would say is orthodox evangelical Christianity. So mm-hmm. sometimes they will use the words liberal, but uh, I I think you know when you find very broad language and very nondescriptive definitions, just beware. Mm-hmm. And that's that's intentional. And it's to a certain spiritual effect without defining what these terms are about. And if you don't find a clear doctrine of heaven and hell, one of the reasons when whatever, you know, almost 20 years ago when Rob Bell did Love Wins and dabbling there with universalism, well, is that really such a big deal? Well, it is because the whole history of the church has rejected universalism and, and massive books have shown that to be true. But yet I, you know, the doctrine of hell is a ballast, is a theological ballast in our boat. A ballast keeps the boat, you know, uh, steady and on track. And when we don't have that doctrine, which Machen saw in his day, when we don't have that doctrine, which can seem like you're just getting rid of this very difficult, unpopular notion of, of hell and punishment, and uh, but then you will redefine what Jesus came to do. You'll redefine the human predicament. You'll redefine what the cross accomplished. You'll redefine mission because now mission is something else. You will lack the urgency in your mission. So that doctrine of hell, as unpopular as it is, is so often that ballast. So I would want to see, does the church have anything like a doctrine of hell? Unpopular or not, Kevin's point is well taken. In a weird way, a loss of a doctrine of hell has incentivized deconstruction or deconversion in the church. Why go to all the trouble of faith in an ancient obsolete religion if it won't make a difference after you die? Yeah, and I think that's right. A lot of young people will hear these terms that are broad and imported with different definitions than what they might have at that moment. And they begin to attend a church where this terminology continues to be used, but then it ends up uh, that the trajectory is one of, of uh, uh, liberalism. 
Uh, on the opposite side, you have a lot of people who have been raised in the church, grow up in an evangelical household, maybe a covenant household, mm-hmm. they're catechized, they hear the gospel preached every single week, and that ancient message doesn't become as relevant. They begin to look elsewhere in some of these other liberal churches for for a, a message that meets the needs of today. And I, I mean, you've been in ministry for more than 20 years now. Uh, and when we look back at the church 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, there, there's an argument to be made that the evangelical church may have contributed to this condition of low visibility uh, by embracing certain trends like church plan, in, in church planning or publishing uh, or even music that mm-hmm. have encouraged redefinition with each decade, culminating perhaps in the, in the recent trend of totally deconstructing one's faith and deconverting so that this, this message is not only ancient and old as they grow up in these churches, right. uh, but they also see things like what I was raised with, wild at heart, you know, and this sort yeah. of masculine approach to being a Christian or like you mentioned, love wins, or you think of Mark Driscoll and everything else. Um, what, I guess the question is, do you think it's a, do you think it's a, a fair critique that the, the evangelical church has actually contributed in some ways to having uh, these evangelical covenant children leave, mm. deconvert? Uh, and if so, how can we prevent, prevent this kind of erosion of meaning in the future? Mm-hmm. I'm sure to some degree, uh, there's certainly fault there. And evangelicalism is broad and it is, it, it has always been a big tent. Uh, there's no Pope of evangelicalism. There's it's, it is by definition, um, multi-denominational. So who is it? What is it? Who defines what it is? Who says who's in or who's out? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's very big. And so if you take that big, big enough definition and ism, certainly, I mean, all the, the things that you mentioned are contributing factors. So there's a number of different ways to look at this deconstruction phenomenon. Uh, on the one hand are, are some of the things you're pointing to. Yes, I think in the evangelical church, though evangelicals said, no, no, not liberals, not liberals, because we believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the, the bodily resurrection. But we have to realize that liberalism is not just a tradition. It's a I would say it's a species of unbelief, hmm. meaning there, there, of course, there will be some issues that were hot issues a hundred years ago that aren't today. Well, you still find people deny the virgin birth, of course, but you know, look out what's going on online. That's not what people are fighting about. So the hard thing is, we all we, we tend to th- we, we look back. We we either want to say who the bad guys and good guys are based on how everything would have mapped out in 1920. Mm-hmm. Well, that will help you to a degree, but there's new issues that have come since then. And and it takes discernment in our day to know, uh, because we don't have the hindsight of history, to know which of the issues we're facing right now, which of the divisions right now will we look back on in 30 years and say, I can't believe we disfellowshipped one another over that issue, which Mm -hmm. proved to be so unimportant. And then there'll be other ones, the camel on the nose of the tent. I think what you said is is really astute that the evangelical church has had a tendency while while wanting to distance itself from liberalism proper of yet reinforcing to its people that Christianity should make you feel good and it should always seem relevant to you. Uh, You shouldn't have to try too hard with uh to with with the service it should work for you uh it's not like we're against new songs you know there's lots of new songs and instruments that's not the issue the issue is when you should get a service tailored to your generation your demographic Mm -hmm. and christianity let's make sure it works for you uh the moralistic therapeutic deism thing Mm -hmm. that you're a good person it makes you feel better well you may still have a great statement of faith on your website somewhere, but you're reinforcing to people a kind of ethos of 
liberalism. Christianity is true when it works or when it's perceived to work. And, and then I think we have to be honest that there are there are times where conservative, evangelical, reformed churches uh, can be graceless, preach a gospel in a way that only appeals to the head and isn't really speaking to the heart, right. doesn't give people uh, an exalted Christ, is too focused on all of the bad things out in the world and creates a sort of uh, self-righteousness within inside the church. Those things happen, and we see the dangers right there in the seven letters of, of Revelation. Last thing, we also need to say, if anyone's listening to this on that deconstruction path or someone you know or love is on it, that even though those factors can play and must be analyzed, yet human beings have their own agency. They make decisions. And sometimes the way in which we now interpret what we experience is not necessarily accurate to what we experience. So there's all sorts of people who actually had pretty decent parents, but they weren't perfect. Their churches actually, a lot of people loved them and kind, but, but they weren't perfect. And then they look back now with the 2023 set of lenses and new terms, and now they look back and and they say, oh, you know what was really happening to me back then is something hugely oppressive or abusive. And it may have been, or it may be that you're now superimposing a different kind of lens that allows one to do spiritually what they want to do, namely, which is the love that we all have of, of autonomy, to call the shots for ourselves, to not be under the authority of an old ancient book or a church, and the world is constantly giving us new rationale for setting aside those truths of the Bible. So if Christianity and liberalism are different religions, what difference does it make? For Christians, it can't be enough just to say we're right and you're wrong. Toward the end of the first chapter of Christianity and liberalism, Machen gives us a glimpse of a better way. Here's a clip from the audiobook. Are we forever condemned to live the sordid life of utilitarianism? Or is there some lost secret which, if rediscovered, will restore to mankind something of the glories of the past? Such a secret the writer of this little book would discover in the Christian religion. When we think about someone who's listening in, and again, on the fence of Christianity and liberalism, this ancient religion versus this more modern, uh, progressive, maybe even transformative force in society. How would you show that person that actually, as Machen will later say, uh, religion certainly should not be commended simply because it is modern or condemned mm -hmm. simply because it is old? So how would you convince them that older is better? Mm -hmm. Well, older is better when it is truer. So it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, drop us back into 1840, 1540, and there it is. There, there's, we, we do not believe in any golden age except in the Garden of Eden before the fall and in the age to come. So we are, we are not utopians. And we do not romanticize the past thinking they all got it right. And if only we could return there and repristinate the past. H having said that, uh, the, the reason I call myself a conservative, though I know that word means different things to different people, is just in the very root of the word to conserve something. And, and I think that's a biblical idea to to stay in the old paths, use the prophetic language, or Paul's language to pass on to, to I've received as a first importance, I'm passing something on to you. So conservative, old, in that there, there was something discovered that needs to be protected, preserved, and passed on. So much of our world and its ethos rejects that entire mindset, let alone whether it's Christian or not, just rejects that whole mindset and suggests you need to find you in this moment. 
you need to be true to the real you. You need to find your own truth. It's all, it's, it's all now. It's all contemporary. It's all focused on yourself. And so perhaps what I want someone listening to, to simply consider is whether yourself can, can bear the burdens of meaning and cosmic significance that our world is, is, is saying the self must bear. Or if there's actually more freedom, more joy, more life, more vitality in, in seeing our insignificance compared to God's grandeur and glory. And if there isn't wisdom in Jesus saying that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, and it cannot truly live and spring forth and bring new life. Might Jesus have been onto something that it is in dying to oneself that we truly live? When everything in our world is telling us, go deeper into yourself, find yourself, live out your own best, true, authentic self, and there you will find fulfillment. Look at the people who have done that to the maximalist degree, and is it a way of life for themselves and for others that produces civilization, order, meaning, or to conserve this thing, this, this good deposit the New Testament calls, this apostolic truth of Christ's life, death, resurrection, he died for sins. Machen said the gospel is historical fact plus theological interpretation. He died on the cross. That's fact according to the scriptures for the forgiveness of sins and was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. That's what we protect. That's what we want to pass on, not because it 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 hems us in, but by constraining us, it gives us life. I'll just Silly example. I just saw this in our backyard the other day. We have three bunnies for some reason. We have nine kids. We have three bunnies. We have two cats. Why, why do we do this to ourselves? Oh, and, life is uh, so much more chaotic now. <laughs> I know. And and one of the the bunnies was was out in a little out of its hutch, and we have you know a fence that gives us maybe you know twenty square feet or something in the grass to kind of run around. But it's got a fence there. Well, it's always trying to dig under and find a way to get out of that fence and it can like try to poke open the door so sure enough there's this black rabbit running around through the woods behind our house and all the kids have to come out like you know Shawshank Redemption looking for Andy Dufresne trying to <laughs> trying to get the bunny back yeah. and I was just telling my kids of course they hate this they're like dad I don't need one of your dad pet preacher speeches but I'm like look at kids there's a perfect illustration this bunny hemmed in by this fence thinks that this is preventing freedom. Real life is if the bunny could get out of this fence. Hmm. Of course, we know better that outside of that fence are cats and coyotes, and you don't get your food brought to you every morning on a dish. Certain you, death. <laughs> certain bunny death is true. <laughs> and uh, how many of us live like, God, you gave me these fences and real life is outside of that fence. And, it, and we won't stay in the fence, so to speak, just, just because, well, that's the right thing to do. We must be captured by this vision that there's a God who just like the bunny, we should all look bunny. If you knew anything, you'd know how much smarter we are than you. And we know life better than you, bunny. Well, we need a God that we that we know is bigger, better, smarter, holier, and loves us and wants what is best for us, and therefore we can trust every bit of his word to us. Yeah, and only then when we live in accordance with God's law, God's word, do we become truly human. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kevin, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been really encouraging to my own soul, so thank you. Great Blessings to be with you. on your ministry. Very special thanks to our guest, Kevin DeYoung, for joining us on this episode of Christianity and Liberalism. Join us next time for my conversation with Rosario Butterfield as we discuss God and man. 
to quote Jane Austen, you know, my, my sore throats hurt more than everybody else's. So it's actually worse today than it was for Machen. The church really needs to wake up and Machen is just that shot of lemon juice in the eyeball that we need. This idea that somehow gay is who I am ontologically is, um, I think is something that the word of God really destroys with its sword. At this particular moment, I would say Machen is, he's the superpower of the confessional church. This episode of Christianity and Liberalism was brought to you by Westminster Seminary Press. Westminster Seminary Press has published a brand new edition of the book this show is based on, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. This 100th anniversary edition features a new forward by Kevin DeYoung, and is available to order now at wtsbooks.com. Listeners to this podcast can get a free download of the Christianity and Liberalism audiobook at checkout when you enter the promo code MACHEN23. That's M-A-C-H-E-N 23. This podcast was based on the book Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen and hosted by David Brionis. This episode was produced by Josh Curry and Jimmy Atkins. Audio captured by Paul Quorum, edited and engineered by Will Bowblitz. Our theme song was written by Timothy Brindle and produced by Nobody Special. Thanks for listening. Machen wrote Christianity and liberalism to demonstrate the two completely different religions. Liberalism denies man's wicked condition and divine inspiration with which scripture was written. Us Christians are convinced scripture's truly factual, but liberalism denies the supernatural. Machen's book definitely showed Christianity and liberalism are diametrically opposed. It's not a different version of Christianity, it has opposite views of God and humanity. Often disguised with Christian terminology, they baptize the serpent's absurd philosophy. So when we call you a liberal, it's not just political, but rejecting his virgin birth and all of his miracles from trusting in science. But against God, it's disgusting defiance. Self is your trust and reliance. The line is drawn in the sand. Christ is gone and he's man. Upon the rock of the word of God, we will stand. We bring the antithesis. The lamb's dripping wrists is still the only answer for man's wickedness. The line is drawn in the sand. Christ is gone and he's man. Upon the rock of the word of God, we will stand. See you now. With Machen, we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell Machen press men, to be honest Don't call it Christian if it essentially is godless Christianity's based on events God accomplished Christ was sent to bring redemption, he promised Not just an ethical leader, respectable teacher But God in the flesh, yes, our blessed redeemer An affront to human pride You can only be saved by faith in Christ who was crucified Amen. Our greatest needs to be redeemed by the Son It's not what would Jesus do but what Jesus has done since we're slaves that doubt pride and lust we're in desperate need of rescue that's outside of us an understatement to say that we're flawed in need of what Machen called a creative act of God cause we're torn by sin we've been abhorring him not just sick but dead we must be born again God's enemies his arrogant opponents who can only be saved by vicarious atonement judgment fell on Christ in my place unrighteous guilty sinners are only righteous by grace scriptures historical acts they are certain Jesus the God man the supernatural person we need new hearts he's the compassionate surgeon by his death and resurrection he's smashing the serpent the line is drawn in the sand Christ is gone and he's man upon the rock of the word of God we will stand we bring the antithesis the lamb's dripping wrists is still the only answer for man's wickedness the line is drawn in the sand Christ is gone and he's man upon the rock of the word of God we will stand see you now with Machen we will tell faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell is to show when I'll mention in this flow Machen's words are as useful as a century ago uh -huh. liberalism breeds destruction it's hopeless today it's deconstruction and wokeness rooted in paganism atheism like Satan's mission to make CRT state religion these abominations we see to this day in denominations like the PC USA why embrace Machen's great wisdom in light of the claims of his racism in 1913 Machen wrote mom complaining angry about Princeton's campus integration. I can't believe the decision of Warfield. But this cancer of heart, I'm sure the Lord healed. See, Warfield became Machen's mentor, an instrument for Machen to repent more. Showing his need of the 
Savior to change him But consider the Lord's grace of sanctification Machen became friends with an African-American named Charlie Machen Gladly had cherished him As a matter of fact, Charlie had a cataract Skin color didn't matter as Machen had his back Paid for the operation, stayed with him in the hospital Christ changing Machen, not an impossible obstacle From his love for his friend Charlie It's quite clear Christ was changing Machen partly Any bigotry left, it's not there any longer Perfected now in the presence of his father The line is drawn in the sand Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell